heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. With all your heart can. Never go wrong. Welcome to QTB Legends, where legends of the gaming industry come to tell their story. My name is Nick, and I am joined once again by Roger Hector. How are you doing today, Roger? Doing fine so far. Yeah, you know, the, the last episode was uh, was fantastic. Just to recap for our, our listeners that may have missed it. Um, and I, if you did, you, you better watch the first episode because this is a, a two-parter. Uh, we talked about a lot, right? Your time in the gaming industry with Atari, uh, Bally, um, Electronics Arts, even some time you spent there at Disney um, and a lot of uh, just little things along the way. And it, 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 for most people, that would be more than enough to say, hey, that's my, my gaming career. But <laughs> for you, it's only part one. Really part one of three, right? Because you've got so much going on today. Oh, so true. <laughs> <laughs> it does uh, seem but, like it's been going for quite a while. Sure. Uh, but on this episode, we are starting things off uh, at uh, your time at Sega, and I'm very excited to get into that. But before we do, I want to make sure we talk about what you've got going on right now, because, uh, and again, we talked about this on the last episode, your upcoming game, or rather as of right now, is released, Venture Valley, um, which is a collaboration between the uh, the Singleton Foundation and Discovery, right? Yes. Yeah, there actually are several more, all, you know, that uh, that, that are involved at this point but we do have uh, it it was originally founded uh and, and conceptualized by will and carrie singleton who were the founders of the uh, the singleton uh, foundation uh they're they're two wonderful people who were basically inspired to have a fun entertaining video game that helps players learn about entrepreneurism and financial literacy uh, they founded the Singleton Foundation and have sponsored Venture Valley, which is a completely new kind of fast-paced uh, multiplayer, multi-platform esports-style game, where players compete against their opponents and the clock. Uh, it's featured both competitive multiplayer and single-player campaigns, and and it's all about starting businesses. So in in every business you start, you're the boss. It, it sounds like a lot of fun, and I, I love the educational aspect, and I want to circle back to that in a second. But, you know, I, I think one of the really interesting things about this is that when I think of a competitive game, I think of, you know, uh, uh, shooter games or, or anything, anything like that. But really, Venture Valley is kind of half sim game, half strategy game. I don't think I've ever heard of a of a competitive sim game before, but there's kind of an esports presence that that's kind of going alongside the launch of this, right? That's true. No, we uh, we have um, uh, it basically is set up and structured uh, to to work as a single player game, but uh, I I personally tend to think the the you know the real fun potential is when you get to join in with your friends and compete against them in in uh, specific challenges that you get to s- establish, or if it's in an organized event like a uh, like a, a real uh, school uh, 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 esports event, a tournament, uh, it's set up to allow like schools to be able to set up and run tournaments that that will provide uh, you know real winning uh, prizes uh, so that you can. Even though the game itself 
is completely free. There's there's no cost to it at all. It's on PC, Steam, iOS, and Android. There are no in-app purchases or ads in the game. Right. But it is possible to win real-world prizes. Uh, so that's kind of a it's a little bit of a unique uh, a reversal of of what game players typically wind up competing against. They wind up, you know, having to pay money to get good at a game and maybe win something back. In our case, it's all free, and oh yeah, you can still get the goodies. Yeah. Now, Roger, this game was was created by and large as a way to help students di- uh, develop financial literacy skills. I'm curious, like, what was the what was the genesis of that? What caused you to identify that need that ultimately resulted in this game? Well, it's kind of like I said uh, earlier. Both Will and Carrie Singleton, who were the founders of of the really the the the, the the whole foundation that is driving this, they uh, it, that is their particular passion uh, is to try and teach those skills uh, and see and allows uh, for young people to learn these skills because typically they they aren't taught in school. Uh, there there is a real need a social need for young people to be able to do that and. This is uh, really their mission is how they've defined uh, what they want to do is they want to help promote uh, entrepreneurism and financial literacy to uh, the entire audience of young people, let's just say high school and college age. Right. Now, again, to all of our listeners and viewers, uh, you can learn more about this game by going to VentureValleyGame.com. And I have to say, one of the one of my my I think the coolest things about it that gets me excited to try it with my family is the fact that not only is it is a cross platform, but between mobile uh, and Steam, like the PC version as well. So I mean, you know, you got the laptop, you got the desktop, you got some smartphones. You can get everybody in on this and uh, kind of make a, a a family game night out of it, right? That's that's exactly right. We've, we we do that all the time, of course, and and uh, the. Uh, just to allow players uh, to play with their friends across different platforms, our, our, uh, all of that is uh, a, kind of an amazingly unique experience. And I will also say rather challenging technically, at least for us, uh, that's, yeah. that's not a small uh, task, uh, but it's really turning out great. Yeah, being being cross platform, you know, it's it's kind of an expectation <laughs> gaming these days. But I mean, it's it. I'm sure on the back end, we don't appreciate the amount of work that actually goes into it. <laughs> oh, so true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So your time at Sega, you know, was was really monumental because we were looking at you know already the the kind of the peak. Well, we what we what most people would have thought was the peak of Sonic the Hedgehog with Sonic One and Two. Um, and all the spinoffs, but then, then of course, Sonic Three is coming along, and that's when you began as the VP General Manager at the at the Sega Technical Institute back in 1993. So you're already walking into a well-established IP that was already finding its groove with Sonic Two, uh, and many many classic uh, platform enthusiasts like myself would agree that Sonic Three is one of the best, if not the best, uh, 2D Sonic game. So what was it like walking into an established franchise like Sonic, and how did you improve on and, and help oversee that to create an even better product than Sonic 2? Well, one thing for sure, um, we had a very well, we had the original Sonic team on board, and they were, you know, they were working on Sonic 3 at that point. So 
one of the things that for me anyway was to not get in their way, but we also uh, had to uh, communicate throughout the rest of Sega as to here's what's coming, here's what we want to plan for. There's there's all of that that is just normally part of uh, you know the communication uh, that that's that's necessary to uh, work with the marketing and work with the different various groups. Um, it turned out for me that one of the challenging parts of this was that Sega had already uh, experienced such great success with Sonic 1 and 2 that they had decided, hey, let's, uh, you know, we, we need to have a, a new Sonic game every year at Christmas time. Wow. <laughs> and so I had to work with the team, uh, the guys, you know, the leaders, the original Sonic team leaders, uh, Yuji Naka, uh, Hirokazu Yasuhara, who was the lead designer, Naoto Oshima, Kunitaki, Aoki. Uh, these were sort of the core Sonic team. There were a number of other uh, really strong Japanese teammates in there, and even some help from the, uh, or additional contributions from uh, the the, the non-Japanese group there. Uh, but yeah, they, they were off on a very good track, one of the issues that had to be dealt with was they wanted Sonic 3 to be so uh, massively successful that it had to be a huge game. And the original concepts for Sonic 3 turned out to be much more than any you know realistic team uh, could produce in time for, for Christmas. And so they, uh, we wound up deciding uh, that we needed to we needed to split it up because uh, it was just way too much content there was too many worlds too many special events too many characters all this uh, was was uh, originally conceived by the team and we had to split it up but it turned out that uh, yes it it worked out um, STI did have I think as I mentioned a, a group of game creators from North America and from Europe, uh, Sega wanted the games to be created for the entire world. And so having this international group working together uh, in one place was the idea. Um, I, when I got there, Sonic 3 was, was well underway, uh, but, but far from being finished. They wanted a new, Sega wanted a new Sonic game following uh, for every Christmas over the next several years. That was kind of the mission that was, uh, that was handed to us. And, and that's one of the things that I had to sort of orchestrate. Uh, so the subsequent Sonic games after Sonic 3, you know, were, were all, uh, had to be planned out well in advance. Uh, and and so the teams all worked together, and and we had, you know, Sonic and Knuckles and Sonic Spinball and a variety of different types and styles of Sonics. Uh, but I do agree that Sonic Three was was uh, truly uh, one of the one of the best of that entire series. Absolutely, uh, you know, especially when you factor in just the the revolutionary concept of right being able to interlock, you know, your different games and the way that Sonic and Knuckles then came in you know, later on and ended up introducing all these new ways to go back, right? That lock-on technology. 
It was just, it was like the golden age of just the add-ons, right? Because the Genesis, you know, it took so long to move on because it was always, well, here's the 32X, here's the Sega CD, here's a, a million ways that we can take your existing console that you already own and and give you a little bit of extra firepower. Uh, that, that had to be a very interesting thing to oversee from your perspective when you saw, you know, now people talk about the infamous just tower of, <laughs> of Genesis <laughs> things you can stack on top of each other. Well, the, you know, the... Uh... The, the whole concept of Sonic and Knuckles um, starts to um, it, it it takes on a little different perspective when you when you know that that was all created or uh, much of it was envisioned uh, as a part of Sonic Three, but it was just too much. Sonic Three was so big that we knew we had a couple of games worth of content there, and so Sonic and Knuckles, and then the whole concept of connecting uh, the characters in both sides is really an extension of uh, uh, of the whole idea that they were originally conceived to be as one game and they kind of ultimately did turn into that in a way yeah absolutely and now your, your tenure at sega also you know you're not you, you did see the eventual end of the genesis era and the beginning of like i said the the 32x and even even the sega cd although the, the Sega CD, not quite as popular uh, here in the States. But then you even moved into entirely new systems, right? Like the, like the Sega Saturn, which was kind of a, a turbulent time there for Sega. Can you share some insight? Because I know on, on the, the U.S. side of things, there was some disconnect, right, between the way that that system was being launched and whether or not there was really a, a, a market for it in the States. Yeah, it was, uh, there was a, it really was a challenging time. It's, it's always challenging and exciting to move from one successful hardware platform to something that's technically new and more powerful. I mean, that was certainly true at Sega, but uh, one of the things that was existing in, inside of Sega at that time was that there were different internal game hardware design teams that were competing against each other. And so it's not like the company went out with one uh, design to turn into the next big thing. There were multiple versions of it that had different microprocessors and were, were really different. And they were competing uh, pretty far into the actual finished development of the hardware. Uh, and so the winner is the one that, that got produced, but there was another, you know, there was a whole other set that, uh, was sort of not not pursued, and that made it difficult to, or at least it seemed to kind of delay the opportunity to be able to uh, give information to game developers, particularly outside the company. You know, here's here's what the the new hardware is. Here's how it works, uh, and and here's some software that'll help make it work, and all of that. Sega was sort of fell behind in that particular uh, section of it. So, yeah, it was challenging. It was uh, the, it was a tough time for the company. Right. And of course, you know, eventually the, the move to Dreamcast and then, of course, the infamous, you know, uh, 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 consolidation of Sega into uh, into the, the software business, which a lot of people may not know. The only reason why they survived that was because of a single angel investor that, you know, like essentially on his deathbed said, hey, I'm going to forgive this loan. And allowed Sega to kind of kind of carry on, but you really got to see Sega uh, in its prime. I don't think anybody can can dispute that. You know, when 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 Sonic was 
was just uh, blowing our minds at high speeds, you know, on these games. And uh, blast processing was still a thing we were talking about. <laughs> um, it was uh, truly a golden era. Now, obviously, I had to lead with Sonic, but, I mean, Sega is so much more than that. Were there any other titles that you were especially proud or fond of when you were uh, working there? Oh, there were several, actually. Um, like I say, we had a, we had a very first-class group. Uh, you didn't get in the door and get a seat to sit in if you didn't really uh, know your stuff. And so STI was, was uh, uh, we created, uh, I get, one of my favorite games there was a game called Comic Zone. Nice, uh, yes. Good old Comic Zone uh, was originally created by one of our, you know, one of our uh, designers, uh, Peter Morwick. And he had this amazing story all by himself uh, that, you know, regardless of everything else that was going on, he, he came from um, Eastern Europe uh, as a young man, all by himself, didn't speak English uh, with the intent of coming to STI in the West coast and being able to work at Sega. And the fact that he was able to successfully accomplish just that, uh, kicked him into gear to create this, the concept for Comic Zone, which was taking a comic book, kind of an old school comic book format of individual window pictures on a page yeah. and connecting them as locations that uh, you could work through as part of an interactive kind of adventure game. Uh, that was, he showed me that one day. He just says, hey, Roger, let me, let me show you this. And I said, well, what, what you got? He said, well, it's an idea for a game. And I'm looking at this. And he completely illustrated it by hand himself yeah. uh, and did a beautiful job that it was just amazing. He said, gosh, this is really a great idea. So let's build it. Well, we didn't have a team staff available to do that at that time. So it took, it took like, I don't know, a year or a year and a half, something. But eventually, we did get a chance to start it. And, and that that game always uh, struck me as being part of that larger story associated with a young guy with a lot of passion and a lot of talent at the same time. Yeah, uh, Comic Zone is something that you would think someone else would have tried to emulate or create like a spiritual successor to, but it really was one of those just just very, it, it popped. And the idea, you know, you see it as a kid and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, what kid wasn't reading comics that also was playing Sega games? That uh, Just that... Yeah, there, there's that, that juxtaposition makes perfect sense for a game. Yeah, genius. Well, there was that. There was there was a game called The Ooze, which was a game that, that had a completely uniquely different kind of lead character that was really an algorithm that basically mo moved around on the screen. Uh, you were that character, and you got to... Uh, work your way through various uh, different types of screens by by oozing your way around through little gaps and little holes and rolling through. Uh, you know, you constantly changed your form. Uh, it it was it was very unique and different for its time. We also did a game called a coin op game, believe it or not, uh, at STI uh, called Die Hard Arcade. Yes, and, and Die Hard Arcade was. Uh, that was a collaborative project between STI in the United States and Sake of Japan Arcade Group. And those guys had tremendous talents. And, and this was kind of an opportunity where we could blend 
together. And, and uh, so that was one of the really unique qualities that Sega had at that time in those days was a kind of a passion to blend Western and, and Asian uh, talent uh, to see what could come up. Those yeah. are cool, cool projects. There were others too. Oh, of course. I mean, we could go on for hours about uh, you know every individual entry, but uh, you know, there's there's I think the the, the big ones, you know, Sonic and, and some of the ones that mean something to you uh, are are very important. I will ask you one follow up question. You know, in in 2022 and beyond, obviously Sega has had some you know, suffered some blows, especially with their arcade division shuttering for the most part there in Japan, and just a a further consolidation of what it was already just a giant. You know, looking back or looking at today, do you see a path forward for Sega that really lets them get back to those glory days? Or do you think that it's just going to be, you know, them taking the, the the few IPs they have that work and just rolling with them? That's a good question. Um, I actually haven't been directly connected to, uh, you know, to the organization in, in for a number, quite a number of years. Right. So uh, I think it actually really depends on who's leading, you know, who's running the ship and who is bringing the various uh, uh, talents and, and creative insights that are necessary to build next generation things. Uh, the odd, you know, one of the, the atypical mistake that's made in that situation is they try to just repeat uh, and re regrind out new versions of old things. And for the most part, that doesn't tend to be very successful. So whoever is actually leading it at this point, uh, I, I would be you know, thrilled to see them be successful and make it happen. They have amazingly valuable uh, uh, intellectual property. And so the IP, uh, I was going to tell you a story about, about when we wanted to motivate the team, the core, the original core team, uh, to get the game out by Christmas, we invited the key members of the team, uh, gave them uh, 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 airline tickets and hotel reservations to attend the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York okay. to see the giant sonic balloon that was so introduced great. that year. Yeah, and they, you know, they had that that they had to get it finished or else they wouldn't be able to go. Yeah. And they did that. And that was just amazing. That was so cool. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that balloon became such a part of the Macy's day parade. I remember watching, I think it was uh, a jingle all the way. And in that movie, you know, they're watching the Macy's day parade and even the Sonic, the Sonic air balloons in the movie. Um, so many people just, you know, uh, 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 combine those two things. So that's so great that Sega has become such a part of, of American culture. And I think back to, or rather in, in recent times here, you know, Sonic mania, which really paid homage and, and demonstrated a mastery of the understanding of why those classic Sonic games are so beloved. Um, and even now Sonic Origins is, is slated for release, which is going to take a lot of those games like your Sonic 3 and Knuckles and, and present it in a widescreen format. So Sega definitely knows, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a market right now to go back and really say what was going on there and how can we make it better? So we have you to thank for that. Well, I... I just played a role, but uh, there was a lot of talented people there. I, I will say that I had to uh, I had to sit and go see the the opening day of the new Sonic uh, Two movie. Okay, what'd you think? Hey, <laughs> I 
very original, all yeah. kinds of goofy, crazy stuff. I had a great time. I could enjoyed you, it. Could you have ever imagined Jim Carrey playing Dr. Robotnik? I no. mean, what a, what a genius casting <laughs> call that I would have never guessed. Now, that was wonderful. I was I was kind of blown away. I brought some kids with me and they all loved it. So we, we had a great time going That's to see great. Sonic, Sonic yeah. 2. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, as much as I'd love to stay on Sega for, for hours and hours, you've got so much more career to talk about. Um, and uh, this is a big one. You know, you, you were uh, the president of uh, Universal Studios Digital Arts Division from 96 to 99. And this part of your career had you doing a lot more than just making video games. So tell us more about what your day to day was like there. Uh, very interesting. Uh Universal Studios was kind of similar to Disney, where I had worked before. They're two, you know, internationally known companies. Uh, they both have theme parks and movies and TV studios and record labels. And so they're, they're kind of in the same business. And a big part of the reason that Disney uh, reached out to me and I worked there was that they wanted to establish a, a base of talent and expertise in interactive entertainment because that didn't exist in Hollywood at that time. And so, uh, and it turns out when, when, uh, when I did leave uh, Sega, uh, I was recruited by Universal to kind of come in and do the same thing. Uh, the idea was, the mission was to create uh, gaming talent and collaborate and share technology across the other divisions of Universal. So it wasn't just purely focused on making a series of games, because I spent a lot of time uh, kind of working with the leaders and the creative people in other parts of Universal. Uh, I had an office both in, in Universal Studios in, in Hollywood and in, and in Silicon Valley, and I bounced back and forth. We, we set up game teams in uh, San Jose, uh, and and we I recruited some some great uh, game talent that I'd worked with before, uh, you know people like Dennis Koval and Lee Actor who uh, have their own you know longstanding uh, game careers. Uh, they came in and and we put together uh, digital arts. We had we had fun creating and launching uh, universal based property games like Xena Warrior Princess, uh, which was you know, that was based on a popular TV show at the time. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it was a natural for, for, uh, you know, making a game out of, and, and the unique part of something like that was that I, I had the opportunity as, as the division president to go in and sit down with the, the original creators and the lead actors and actresses uh, that are in the oh, TV wow. show. Yeah. And we brainstormed together to see what could we do with a storyline that would work both for the uh, the TV show and for a video game version of it, that sort of thing. And that that was, I mean, I enjoyed that. That was really a lot of fun. That's such a, a special opportunity that just doesn't happen anymore unless, you know, a celebrity is directly involved in the making of a game. You right. know, uh, in, in, our, uh, in our interview with, uh, with Don Traeger, he talked about working with, you know, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird one-on-one -on -one to literally learn about their stats and, and, and make sure that they approved of these games. And there you go for you as well, getting a, to work with, 
with these big name celebrities on their games and uh, and get their input. There's focus groups like that. Just don't, I don't think they happen anymore, Roger. <laughs> I, I I'd be shocked. I would be amazed because it you know these things tend to get sort of politically um, co- um, complex. Sure. Uh, with with all of the contracts and all of the various responsibilities. But yeah, no, that was fun. I I. I originally picked up those ideas at EA working with Don Traeger. So there you, you know. go. Yeah, it just carries. It's all. It's all. Uh, it all comes around. Well, yeah. you know, Universal had their hands on a lot of IPs in the '90s, um, with many of them later changing hands. That some people may not even realize, like like Crash Bandicoot. Um, oh, yeah. Are there any particular titles that uh, you know you, you mentioned Xena? Um, any other titles that you're proud of publishing in hindsight that maybe people don't realize was attributed to Universal Studios? Um. The the projects that I worked on directly, um, I mean, I, I I knew all about Crash, uh, and that was all great. But I was focused on on doing some other things that were more collaborative within the actual uh, movie and uh, uh, theme park entertainment business. So I didn't actually deal with those guys, uh, but but the I mean I know, uh, but uh, the Universal. Uh, Universal owned quite a lot of IP, and some of it was classic old things like uh, the Universal Monsters, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, all of those characters that were, you know, have been around since movies way in the distant past. Uh, I was in, I was in a role kind of behind the scenes, kind of helping develop. Uh, games and licenses around some of the classic properties of Universal. But I will say that Universal was going through uh, a real variety of organizational changes at the time I was there. They were, I, I had five different bosses in three years. Wow. And, and, you know, when you're, there was only seven divisions of Universal at the time, and I was one of them. Uh, but man, when there's so much turnover that it was, it became very difficult to uh, uh, to make plans that you can actually enact on. And and uh, when my when my contract was up with Universal, I was kind of happy to uh, to step out and and uh, uh, I came back to Silicon Valley. That's right, and that's a great uh, transition here into the next part of of your career because yeah, I guess the the turmoil and the red flags there it, it kind of sent you off in a different direction and for the better because I don't think many people in the gaming industry can lay claim to the the next few stops that we're about to land on. Um, so you, you spent some time there at uh, the Enterprise uh, Broadcasting Corporation um, and it, you had some ambitious ideas for entertainment and advertising delivery, right? So tell us some more about your time there. Well, that was, uh, it was a startup and uh, I was, uh, I've, I've done startups before and in this particular case, uh, the concept was to, to uh, it was really an exciting startup, uh, and it was in what was called the dot-com era. Uh, if you're old enough to remember the dot-com era, that was when online retail selling was just getting started. Uh, internet, uh, broad distribution of the internet into people's homes was just getting started. So. Our concept was to create a new kind of shopping mall retail store 
that actually looked like a movie theater in a shopping mall. So all of the big screen entertainment was in high def, which was completely new technology. If high, everything that you go see in a movie theater today is in high def. There was zero high def available at the time in movie theaters. So we had this very, very unique opportunity to, to introduce high definition uh, hardware presentation, you know, theatrical presentation on large screens with multiple. Uh, we had uh, Dolby was a partner and they created their own audio system for these special theaters that were in malls. Uh, all of our format programming was short formatting. So it was all like maybe five minutes long with a couple of minutes gap and then there'd be another show. And so admission was free. Each comfortable leather chair in the theater was, was a reclining comfortable leather chair with a touchscreen monitor that sat right in front of you uh, through which you could purchase things that we you saw in the shows wow. so that when the different shows played uh, certain things would be available to buy and you could slide your credit card through the, uh, you know, through the, the slot and purchase things that would be shipped to you uh, through online fulfillment, which was brand new. All of that was brand new at that time. So it was truly a new concept that we called retail entertainment. And, uh, it it was it was really a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun. We actually built uh, several theaters and and produced uh, all kinds of uh, interesting sort of fun and unique uh, uh, entertaining shows about things like you know Chrysler would would offer a new car model for sale. Yeah, it show people in the car or Disney, uh, you know Disney uh, uh, cruises. Okay. were featured on the great big giant screen yeah and and fashion you know uh, heck macy's would would uh, be able to present what's what's great at macy's right now right around the corner inside the mall and so there was all these different subjects that were that were coverable and uh it was a lot of fun uh i, I enjoyed it quite a bit it was you know it as as is true for all startups there's a kind of a vulnerable period. We did raise uh, financial capital uh, to actually execute and do all this stuff, but turns out shopping malls started having all kinds of economic problems. Yeah, that might have been where the bad timing was. So I'm just thinking like it that the concept is ahead of its time in the retail space. It's ahead of its time in the entertainment space. Yep. And ahead of its time in that it's short form content, which, you know, nowadays that's whatever, even Disney is putting out, you know, their little five minute shorts. So it, it seems exactly. like uh, if you could have had malls just hang on for a little while longer, right? <laughs> if it held on for just a little bit, we'd have, you know, we, we could have uh, done better. But but uh, it was quite a, an amazing experience and, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, the unique experiences certainly don't stop there. And this is such a, a very cool part uh, of your career uh, with your time at uh, Anteros Coachworks. And for those of you <laughs> that are watching right now, uh, you're, you are now seeing on the screen um, a very cool looking sports car. Why don't you tell us about this, Roger? <laughs> well, when I was a little kid, I loved to build model cars. 
And when I got older, I wanted to design cars. That was sort of my personal career ambition. Uh, I, I went to college. I got a General Motors scholarship. I got a BS degree in automotive design. But when I graduated, Detroit was laying off employees. And so I had to just find something else. And that's really what led me to get uh, to go to Atari and start a whole different career path. So, but, but I am an artist and a designer and a creative guy. And many years later, uh, I decided to go ahead and design a sports car because I always wanted to do it. Sort of a classic style. I took a couple of years to do this and eventually I showed it at a great big car show. And, and I was shocked that many people wanted to buy one. So I started a company called Anteros Coachworks, which was just me. I was the only employee. <laughs> and, and I contracted with a factory to build a production sports car uh, that was to the specifications and the designs that I all did. It was all carbon fiber and very high performance and actually pretty sophisticated as, as a car, but it was what I'd, I'd wanted to do a long time. And they just got started building the cars uh, that I had sold. But unfortunately, they went bankrupt and they had to close their factory. And there had only, only a couple of the cars had been completed. So this makes it a limited edition. That's my positive spin. Uh, it's a limited edition sports car. And, and I'm lucky to have one of them today. So I get to drive around and have some fun in it. What a cool claim. Do you know how many of these uh, are believed to be in existence? Uh, I'm going to say there were four prototype cars made and uh, two production cars. So there's a total of six. Wow. I was going to build a bunch more, but and I had sold more, but but that's kind of the way that it all worked. That's incredible. And it's based on the uh, the, the C6 Corvette, is that right? Your design Yeah, there's a C6... Yeah, there's a C6 Corvette chassis, suspension, uh, 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 engine, although it's been supercharged and modified and, you know, everything is tweaked up. So it's, uh, it's, it's actually quite a hot rod for sure. Wikipedia is saying 500 plus horsepower. So you weren't messing around with this thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so incredible. And just a, a very, a very fun destination. And that, that, that's so fascinating to me that, you know, this was, you know, the gaming was kind of your, your backup, right? You know, you went to, you went to school for something different and you made, you made both happen in your own way. Um, so very cool. Yeah, it was, it, it was kind of a dream project. I had time on my hands and I wanted, I thought I'd see what would happen. I had no intention of actually manufacturing them, you know, when we got started, but once you're started, you go, well, let's see what happens. You've got the you've got the factory line, right? Let's uh, let's go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, from there, uh, you headed over to uh, Bandai Namco Games of America as the uh, the senior VP of product development. And during your about four year uh, tenure there, a lot of games were published. You know, uh, we were just talking about this on the on the QTB podcast of so many games come out published by Bandai Namco that, especially um, in in Western culture, people don't attribute to the publisher. Um, over 120 games were made during your run there. So what was it like overseeing such a rapid fire cycle of game releases from a North American perspective? Uh, well, yeah, Namco Bandai 
they they recruited me to take over the game production for North America and Europe. So the games that I oversaw were the games that were targeted for North America and Europe. So uh, the the Japanese uh, uh, group was the one that was cranking out huge quantities, and it was really focused on and targeted for the Japanese market. Uh, but it was a blast jumping back into games, you know, after being in cars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like I say, it was very busy. Uh, one of the reasons that they wanted me, uh, I believe, was that there were a number of struggling projects <laughs> that mm. that were, you know, they were partially completed and they there were issues uh, sort of not working out uh, or falling behind, behind schedule, all that sort of stuff. And I spent my first period reorganizing and changing uh, the structure of teams and the designs for several projects that were struggling at that point. And I even had to restart some of them. But uh, once we got past that, uh, that that was the my initial focus. That's kind of why I was hired. But once we got that underway, uh, then then really it was fun um, creating original Western focused games like Enslaved or Afro Samurai or some of those kinds of games. Yeah, you know those were uh, uniquely targeted and and uh, really a lot of fun. Those fun fun projects. Yeah, a lot of a lot of westernized games, and one of the things I think is very interesting about Bandai Namco, especially during this time, is and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but how it differed from Sega is that Sega really had a, a better focus, like you had mentioned, on crossing over Western and Eastern culture, right, with their staff to create games that that didn't need a whole lot of work to localize. But I, I look at Bandai Namco, and you know, just in that that four year stretch, you were there. It's not just you know Pac-Man and Soul Calibur. We're talking uh, you know uh, Taiko no Tatsujin, Gundam Wing games, Naruto games, even uh, uh, Japanese Tokusatsu like uh, Common Rider. We're getting adaptations. So, what was it? Were there any challenges for you that you faced when you had to localize these titles for American audiences? Well, uh, as it turns out, because I did have my Sega experience, I kind of was familiar with how to do some of this. Uh, I, I, I've never claimed to be completely bilingual, but I did uh, initiate uh, uh, English language classes for, for uh, English speakers. Uh, I'm sorry, for Japanese uh, language classes for English speakers so that we could actually get a little bit more uh, well communicated. Although we didn't actually do foreign localization in uh, in the U.S. at that point. Okay. So they did, it, the uh, Namco Bandai Japan did the foreign localization. Every project I took on was new and focused on the Western market. So there was, there were some cultural disconnects, uh, you know, as to be expected, but, but nothing was really too difficult. And I was, I feel like I was really lucky to, to work with very strongly talented uh, people uh, there. So that was, uh, uh, it, it was overall a very good experience. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, now, you, you had mentioned Afro Samurai, among other, were there, were there any other games in particular that you have memories of or stories about while you were working there? 
<laughs> uh, gee, the the stories uh, probably would apply to to the projects that had to be completely restarted. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and and uh, I, I do remember having to uh, shut down a, a game developer, which is something that you know. I've been a game developer. I, I know what that's all about. And it yeah. was really tough. Uh, and that's kind of a situation where a game developer that we had been working, that we had contracted with, uh, stopped developing the game and started doing other things with the money they were being paid. And so it it literally turned into a situation where we had to go down and, and, and uh, yank the project from them. And those were uh, for me for literally I think the first couple of years I was I was trying to take care of and fix and I think successfully ultimately uh, ultimately everything uh, did make it to the market but it was uh, uh, some of them were were quite a bit tougher than others. Sure. Now one of the last stops here on your uh, release for this episode is your time at uh, Video Plus LLC. You were a co-founder of this. Um, and uh, this is prior to your work, what you're doing now at the Singleton Foundation. Tell us a little bit more about the company, what it creates. Uh, there's there's actually uh, uh, there's actually a couple of companies in here that are kind of blended. They're both startups. They're both uh, technology, uh, uh, creative, engineering, and design uh, with a touch of uh, entertainment attached to them. So you get it, uh, really. Uh, as a creative engineering and design business that consulted on a variety of projects with other companies. So we were, we were uh, acting as consultants uh, in interactive entertainment and like the theme park business. Uh, it was, it was fun dealing with, you know, all of that. But at this point, I can't really talk about it because it's still in development and still out there. Video plus uh, was a subsequent LLC that I founded. Uh, it was really one of my last, you know, stops before uh, working with Singletons. But it's it's an extension of the previous work. Uh, it includes social media uh, things like an app that I created called Top Track. Uh, that is a it's a you know it's an iOS and Android app. It's in the App Store right now. Uh, Musicians designed for musicians to promote their own music through social media. And we have tens of thousands of singers and bands from all around the world using it. So they're actually uh, sharing. They can download the app and they can uh, share their music uh, through, uh, through social media very easily that way. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's been fun for several years. Um, We've also focused on a very sophisticated new type of video technology that that uh, is kind of in a patent pending mode right now. It allows viewers to actively interact with stories and characters in recorded video that combines real-time computer-generated graphics like a game, but into what is essentially a movie. So uh, it is something that's new. It isn't out yet. Uh, okay. There's there's the potential for it to become maybe something big. We don't know yet, but uh, we've already been playing poker with the aliens 
in a Star Wars bar. I can say that. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to tip your hand too much, so to speak, but <laughs> that's very exciting. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if your past history is any indicator here, Roger, you know, you uh, you shoot for the stars um, with, with every project. So uh, I, I can't wait to see more from uh, what comes from that. And of course, speaking of projects, again, reminder to our viewers and listeners here to check out Venture Valley. Available now, you can go to VentureValleyGame.com. Uh, the links to that uh, will be in our show notes or description if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, Roger, again, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Before you go, uh, and this is as a, you know, a, as a lifelong fan of Sonic, you know, <laughs> there's no one at, there's no one here who's better qualified to settle this feud. Who's going to win in a fight, Sonic or Knuckles? Roger Hector, what's the answer? Oh, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> Pop quiz. Ouch. Ouch. I, I, can, I, I can tell I'm going to get beat up by the Sonic team. Uh, <laughs> no matter how I go on that particular one, I would, I would have to say that I wasn't shocked and surprised by the Sonic 2 movie that... Knuckles was one hell of a tough dude, but Sonic ultimately uh, led, you know, led the charge out uh, to the finish line. You know, I think a lot of it's, it's tough to argue with, though. Uh, so, so many people uh, love, you know, Sonic and Knuckles and, uh, you know, the way Knuckles came into the franchise. It's uh, it's Sonic's world. We're just living in it, right? <laughs> Very much so. And it keeps going. It does. I, it, it, it's so cool to see the Sonic, you know, cinematic universe playing out and the success of that first movie. Um, really kind of paving the way, I think, and, and other ones like Detective Pikachu and the new Mortal Kombat movie, really giving us finally uh, a, a golden era of, uh, of video game movies because so many for so many years there, um, there were some challenges, right, where you know, Nintendo was like, no, nah, you, can't, you, can't, you can't have our IPs anymore, and uh, everyone else you know, may have made a movie, but it was just okay. That has to be fun from your perspective. Well, I tell you, uh, I saw a little... Uh, uh... Hollywood uh, uh, news report that the Sonic 2 movie that just came out uh, has been the top earning uh, video game movie of all time. Yeah, not surprising. Not surprising. So I'm going, yeah. all right. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, again, Roger, this has been such a great interview series. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, yeah, can't wait to see what incredible things you come up with next. Hey, thank you much. It's been it's been fun. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I look forward to seeing all the other good stuff that you guys are doing. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you so much for checking this out, and we'll see you next time on QTB Legends.